Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, first book in the Bible. That'll be Genesis chapter 25. We're going to be looking at this morning. And this summer, we're going to be going through a series um, looking at the life of Jacob. Over the last several weeks and last couple months, as we've been working through the book of First and Second Thessalonians, we have been seeing how Paul has been calling those that call themselves Christians to live like Christians, for that truth to be manifested in their life and to be shown in the way that they live. Well, as we look at Jacob, we're going to see someone who is the polar opposite of that, someone who is a hero of the faith, but of whom there is not really anything particularly heroic about him. Actually, he's a rather despicable creature, as we'll see in the upcoming, as we see in the upcoming weeks. But here this morning, as we dive into this, we're going to be looking at um, the birth of Jacob and Esau and um, see how God's grace abounds and begins to abound in broken and sinful people. Follow along with me as I read Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 through 34. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived The children struggled within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted, And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what youth is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus... Esau despised his birthright. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, let us see here in your word your promise, your truth, your grace, that we would be changed by it. Thank you for the promise of Jesus. Thank you for the working of your Holy Spirit. Have it work in us now, we pray. Amen. Hey, Kristen, I'm popping, if you could fix me. Um, In 2012... There was a 19-year-old, by, a 19-year-old from the state of Washington by the name of Dakota Green who was charged with stealing. And he was charged with stealing a rare coin collection worth at least $100,000. What had happened is that this man, Dakota Guerin, was um, working, had a part-time job where he did some work in a woman's home. And after the work was completed, the woman noticed that her rare coin collection was missing and she immediately filed a report to the police that this valuable coin collection was missing, and this coin collection included many rare and valuable coins, including Liberty Quarters, 
Morgan dollars, and many other coins from the early 1800s. Initially, when the police came to investigate Guerin, he denied any accusation. He denied the accusation, saying they had no evidence against him whatsoever that he stole this rare coin collection. That was until he started spending the coins at face value. Not long later, he took his girlfriend out to movies, out to the movies. And he paid for the movie using the two movie tickets using quarters worth between, where each quarter was worth between $5 and $68 as he bought over $20 worth of movie tickets. Later that same day, he went to a pizza parlor with his girlfriend where he used rare coins, including the Liberty Quarter, which individually was estimated at $18,000. He used that, those rare coins, to purchase pizza at this pizza parlor. The news article stated that Guerin has been charged with first-degree theft and he is being held in jail on $40,000 bond, which technically is an amount he could easily afford if the valuable coin collection were, were actually his. How easy it is to have something that is so familiar, something that is so common that we lose its value. How easy it is for us to undervalue the truth of the gospel and the promises of God. Something that can seem so ordinary, something that we talk about so often, that if you go to church regularly, you hear it every week. If you were grow up in a Christian home, you hear it hopefully in your home discussed. How often we hear these things, these words, these promises, these promises that sometimes have, have benefits that seem far off and they seem so ordinary and so simple. Here this summer, as we dive into looking at the life of Jacob, we actually have an individual who understood the value of the promises of God. He understood the value of a relationship with God, and yet he was constantly trying to steal and to manipulate and to achieve it by some other way. You could say that Jacob understood how much the coin collection was worth, and he kept trying to grab it by stealing and manipulating for it. But here, as we begin to enter in the story, we begin by looking at, particularly at the life of Esau, and it sets up the contrast in how God's grace works. For Esau was one for whom the relationship with God and the promises of God were worth nothing more than movie and a bucket of popcorn and a night at the pizza parlor as he traded them away. As we dive into this story here, what this story does for us is it highlights two very profound and fundamental things and seeks to answer two very simple questions. Simple but deep questions. Questions such as, which we'll look at, was why does God save? In fact, why does God save anybody? And having seen that, not simply why does God save, but how does God actually save his people? So to begin with, this text first addresses the question of, why does God save? Why does he save anybody? And the short answer that this text makes so abundantly clear is that it is not because, it is not because of us. We're going to see this in several different ways, but the first way we see it here comes in verses 22 through 23. It says, The children were struggled together within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? What that means, she is saying, if I'm having such a difficult pregnancy, if this is the fulfillment of God's promise, why am I having such a challenge in my pregnancy? That's what she's wrestling with. So she tries to figure this out. She sees it as a bad omen, so she went to inquire of the Lord. Here's the Lord's answer. And the Lord said to her, 
Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. That is, they are going to be constantly in tension and conflict with one another. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. What's being emphasized here is why does God say, well, it's not because of us. And it's not because of our heritage, and it's not because of our family. Jacob and Esau were both born into the very same family. Both of them had the same origin. Both of them could have been recipients of the covenant promise. How easy it is for people to grow up into a church and to say, well, why are you a Christian? Well, I was raised going to church. I was raised in a Christian family. That's why God saves me. And Scripture is so abundantly clear that why does God save? It's not because of us. Not because of our heritage. It's not because of our family. Also, it's not because of anything that we have or haven't done. Before the two of them were born, there was conflict. There was contention in utero. That at this point, the reversal that God had decided was already beginning to take place. And so God saves not because of us, not because of merit, not because of anything we have done or have not done, as we see clearly that this was already decided before they were born. Not only that, it's not also not because of our success and not because of our position in society. Jacob could have been born first. But God, in order to make this point, reverses the order and has Esau be born first, and yet the promise and the one who is saved ultimately is Jacob. Why? To teach us that our societal position and our success and our status in this life has no bearing on our salvation. It's not just this, but then the text goes a great length to make a couple other points clear. It's not because of us, not because of our merit, not because of our family, not because of our position in society. And then verses 27 and 28 emphasize it's not because of any acclaim we have or what anybody else thinks of us. The text describes Esau and Jacob this way. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, which would be a valuable trait in a primitive society of someone that could actually go out and kill animals with primitive weapons. Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. He had great survival instincts. He knew how to survive on his own and keep other people alive. But Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. He liked venison. But Jacob, but Rebekah, loved Jacob. The description here in in describing Esau is that Esau was a man's man. He was strong. He was tough. The text is praising Esau's vigor and that he is a courageous man. Whereas Jacob is described as a quiet man dwelling in tents. It's not simply just telling you Jacob didn't live in a house, he lived in a tent. What it's telling you is that Jacob spent his days sitting in the tent. Jacob wasn't doing what men were supposed to be doing. He was a homebody. He was addicted to domestic leisure. That there was nothing worthy of commendation about him being a man because he spent his time sitting in the tent all day long. And it was apparent that between the two of them that Esau was the dad's favorite. The text tells us that Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. He was really proud that his son could go out and kill wild animals and he would come back and he'd roast him the leg of a hog or whatever it was that he conquered that day. You see what the point's emphasizing. Why does God save? It's not because of us, not because of our success, 
not because of our acclaim. It's not because of what you think of you. It's not because of how great you think you are or how great other people think you are or how successful you are. It's not because of any of these things. And the text goes and say, well, what about being a good person? Well, the text goes on to explain that it's also not because of our character and goes to great lengths to describe how bad of characters both Jacob and Esau were. Esau's described this way in verse 25. The first came out, read all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. And that just tells you he's a bad dude. Just kidding. What that's a reference <laughs> hairy men, you're out. Um, what that's a reference to is that the text isn't just giving this as a textual description. It's actually, an, they're giving it as an indicator of his character. What it's saying is that Esau here, this hairy man, this omen that he here, is that he was, he was a brute. He, had, he, was excessively, he was an excessively sensual individual. He was wild. He was strong. He was a man of desire, a man of brute force, one who was impulsive, a sensualist, driven by his desires here and now. And we see this in this little vignette that plays out as this addendum to the story in verses 29 and 30. It says, Jacob, Esau was named, this guy was so hairy, he was named Esau. It's representative of his character. He was a wild man. And in fact, here's what he did one time. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, lentil stew that is, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom, Edom being the word for red and red being covering shades of brown and hues and reds, all those things to get all those colors tied in together. He says, let me, he comes in, he's exhausted. He is ravenously hungry and he says, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. And commentators point out that the usage of the term, the way that the the Hebrew is written here, it's this very punctuated, accented, exclamation point type language. That Esau is coming in ravishly hungry and he's saying, "Let let me just gulp down some of that red there, some of that red there, let me just eat it, I just want to eat it all right now. He's going to scarf it down. I mean, he wants to eat right now. He's ravishly hungry. That's a description of his character and being emphasized of his character. And because of the the desire for the here and now, the desire to experience immediate material benefits leads him to sell his birthright, which we'll get into more in a moment. But Hebrews and laters sees this example as evidence of how, what a bad character Esau was. Hebrews writes this, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it, that is by the root of bitterness, many become defiled. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy. How was he unholy? Like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. What Scripture's emphasis is that Esau was someone of poor character. But so was Jacob. Verse 26 describes Jacob this way. It says, After his brother came out, afterward his brother, that is Jacob, came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. That is that, which means deceiver, it means heel holder. We might call it, say he is an ankle biter, um, with a term that might be used today. The word actually has some other, it can be interpreted a couple different ways, which we'll see in a couple, diff- a couple weeks. But the emphasis here is that he was a heel holder. He was a usurper. That this was representative of his character. 
that he was sly and deceitful. And when the opportunity came up for him to usurp his brother, because his brother's coming in like this wild animal ravenously hungry, Jacob comes in and uses it to swindle his brother out of it. But Jacob knew that the promises of God, that the promise and that the, the birthright was foreign to him. It wasn't his. Yet he tried to buy it. He tried to manipulate it. He tried to coerce possession of it as if the grace of God were for sale. And we see Jacob's, I think some evidence of Jacob's conviction and guilt over this incident is that even though he got the birthright from his brother, Jacob never dared to make a claim upon it. He never dared to uh, assert his right in it. Because he knew that it was something that was not for sale and something that could not be manipulated. And subsequently, what we see happens is that this deal, despite Jacob's deceitful character, actually really had no bearing on his eventual possession of the promise of God. All that it did was to show his deceitful nature. You see, it wasn't, why did God save? Not because of us, not because of our character. It wasn't because Esau didn't deserve it and Jacob did deserve it. Neither one of them deserved it. That all occasion for boasting is taken away. Let me make this a little bit more personal. Why has God, if you're here and you're a Christian, why has God, why has God saved you? Why has God saved me? R.C. Sproul, the theologian, reflects on this question. He says, I know of no more difficult a theological question to deal with than this one. That's a profound statement from a man who studies difficult theological questions. He says, I know of no more difficult a theological question to deal with than this one. I've been studying theology for many years, and I still can't come up with an exhaustive reason to explain why God would save me or anyone else for that matter. And he goes on to describe, well, well, why does God save me? And some would quickly say, well, God saves you because you put your faith in Jesus Christ when you heard the gospel that you were a sinner and that you couldn't save yourself and that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave and that if you believe in him, your guilt and shame is removed and God saves you and you have an eternal relationship with him. And yes, that's true. That's true in part in the fact that every individual person needs to make that decision to follow Jesus. That when you hear the gospel, you need to respond to it. And that is the means that God works to bring you into a saving relationship with him is by putting your faith in the promise that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But Sproul presses the question, he says, but why did you respond in faith? Why did you respond in faith when another person didn't? What caused you to respond and other people to reject it? What caused you to put your faith in Christ, possibly during the very same presentation that someone else is rejecting their faith in Christ? What answer do you come up with? Some people press it and say, well, I I don't know. I mean, I, I, I guess I'm a better person than they are. I mean, God forbid anyone say that on Judgment Day. We'll say, well, I, I don't know. I, it just made sense to me. And, you know, I, under, I understood it and it just made sense to me. I, I, I guess I'm just smarter than they were. Eek. I mean, really? I mean, I hope no one says that. Well, why are you not someone? I don't know. I, I, I guess I just, I, I, I recognize my need. 
It is my humility and my clear thinking. I'm a little bit better than the other person's, and I, I recognize my need. I, I, I hope no one says that. Why, why has God saved me? Sproul puts it this way. He says, I have to say with the ancient man that there, but for the grace of God, go I. I cannot give any reason other than God's grace for why I am saved. That when I look at all these people who have rejected the grace of God, and people who have rejected the promises of God, and people who have lived horrific lives, and people who have done horrific things, when I look at that and say, why them and not me, the only thing I can say is that there but the grace of God in my life, go I. And the only reason that I can give, why does God save? Quite simply, it is solely and only because of his grace. That is the only conclusion, is that God saves people not because of us, but because of his grace. And later scripture referred to this passage of Jacob and Esau and the prophecy given about them on several different occasions to emphasize that God saves us not because of us, but only and solely because of his grace. Most prominently in Romans chapter 9. It says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad to show that it was not because of us, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls us, in order to show that it is not because of us, but wholly because of God, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written in Micah or Malachi, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, so that it depends not on human will or exertion. It does not depend on us, but on God who has mercy. It is solely and only because of his grace. So why is it that it is Jacob who is saved and not Esau? It's not because of anything from them or from themselves, but simply God's grace. Neither of them deserved it. It's not because of either one. And you have to understand, this truth that it is not because of us and wholly because of God is incredibly good news. It is incredibly good news. Why does God save? It is not because of us. And I think part of the reason why, or, or I mean, excuse me, this is such good news. Because what it means is that you don't have to get right with God. You don't have to get your act together. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to be smart enough. You don't have to be successful enough. You don't have to have enough claim. You have to be church going up. You don't have to have anything of that because it's not about you. And it's not because of what you have done or what you haven't done, but holy God's grace. It is completely of his grace. But you know what? We have such a hard time with this truth. We have such a hard time believing this truth that I am only saved by God's grace, that I am only saved because God's God, in his sovereign mercy, chose to bestow his grace upon me and upon you. We have such a hard time with it. And I think the reason why we have such a hard time with it is because we really deeply and truly believe that we have something to offer, that we actually bring something to the table. That the reason why I responded and not the other guy, because God's going, I want that guy on my team and not that one. That we actually are bringing something to it, but Scripture is so clear. 
is that why does God save? It is not because of us. And the wonder of God's grace is why does God save anybody at all? And the only answer, the only answer is his unmerited and undeserved grace which he chooses to give. So what do we do with that? You stand in awe and you stand in wonder and you worship him because we are saved by grace. That's the why question. Here comes the how question. How does God save? And the way that God saves is he saves through his promise. We see this is that God saves through his promise that he made to Adam and Eve and then to Abraham. And then he saves to his promise that is passed down from generation to generation of God's own faithfulness, which is called God's promise from generation to generation, is God's covenant. And that God saves, and how he does so is not through your obedience, not through your response, but through his promise. And we see this hope and the tragedy in the story of Esau, verse 31 through 34. He comes in ravenously hungry, and he says, Jacob, Jacob says to him, seeing the opportunity, sell me your birthright right now. Talk about out of left field. I'm hungry, I'm hot and sweaty, I want something to eat. Some of your birthright. Like, give me the keys to, give me the give me your keys to your mortgage. You know, give me your mortgage. Give me your bank account. And Esau says, I'm about to die, surprisingly. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. Imagine that, lentil stew, a dish still popular in Egypt and Syria today. But he sells it for lentil stew. He ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The emphasis of the text here is not that Jacob gets his birthright, but that Esau rejected it and that Esau despises it. Well, what is a birthright? Later in the later development of, of civilization, particularly later development within the, in the Old Testament, is that Deuteronomy describes that a birthright, the child that has the birthright, what that means is that of the male children, when the inheritance is divided, the child that holds the birthright gets twice, gets a, a, a double portion of it. So for Jacob and Esau, what that would mean is that Esau would have gotten two-thirds of the inheritance and Jacob would have gotten one-third of the inheritance. That's what it meant in later development. But here, particularly in the time of the patriarchs, um, and in a tribal society, what it meant to receive the birthright meant that you received the chieftainship. You became the chief of the tribe. You were the one who became, had rule over, not only over the inheritance, but over your brethren, over the entire family. That you were the one who was the title of the promise and that you were the one who was the ruler over your clan. You see this a little bit more, in the, for example, in the English monarchy with um, Prince William and Prince Harry. Prince Henry. Henry? Harry? Harry. Harry. We'll go with Harry. Um, not Esau. <laughs> Prince Harry. Is that what happens is that as soon as Prince William um, becomes king, is that he is the one who not only gets the inheritance, but he gets the, he gets the kingship. And Harry doesn't get any of that. And so too what was happening here is that whoever got the birthright got received the chieftainship, became the ruler over, became the ruler over the brethren and over all of the possessions. But for Jacob and Isaac, I'm sorry, for Jacob and Esau, when they received the birthright from Isaac, that also included the title of God, the, the title to the blessings of God's covenant promise. It included not only the possession of 
Israel, Canaan, and covenant fellowship with God, where God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. It included all of those things and the promise of God. But for Esau, it was of no value to him. The only thing that was of value to him was sensual enjoyment in the present moment, to live life in the present moment, that the promise of the Redeemer and an eternal inheritance had little value, that the future blessings and the relationship with God before him were worthless. I mean, consider this. Esau sold being the bearer of God's promise, being the forebearer of the Messiah, which he would have known of, that he sold a relationship with God in his eternal inheritance. For he knew all along that with the material blessings of the birthright, there was this spiritual blessing. He knew that he was forfeiting these things for a bowl of lentil stew. That he was using his Liberty Quarters and Monroe Dollars to buy popcorn and pizza. Because the blessings of God were of no value to him. I think Jacob is a bit astounded by this actually occurring. (laughs) And to be sure, Jacob has him swear an oath. And to swear an oath is not just saying, do you promise? But what it says is saying, to swear an oath is to say, in the name of Yahweh, And in the presence of our covenant God, I promise I am selling you my birthright for this stew. You would have to think that when Esau rushed in upon rudely demanding food, that he might have been a little bit not thinking straight. But now when an oath is exacted from him in the name of Yahweh, in the name that he would have heard his father and his grandfather Abraham, who was still alive, referred to many times. And in the name of Yahweh, the weight of the decision should have overcome him. But instead, he sells it. As one scholar wrote, and when he sells it, Esau, in this oath, makes God himself a witness to his ingratitude and to his rejection of the covenant and God's promises. The issue as we respond to this is not simply, oh, how stupid. How stupid. That's not the right response. The response is how he despised the promises of God. How he despised them in making making this decision. And the tragedy of it for Esau is that the very thing that would have saved him, the very thing that would have blessed him is the thing that he despises. Could Esau have been saved? Yes, if Esau believed in the promise. And it was big enough for both Jacob and Esau. But Esau despised the promise of saying, what good is the promise? What good is the promise if I'm hungry right now? How easy is it not? How easy it is to compromise the promises of God for momentary gratitude, is it not? And you see the nature of God's promise. We see that it's not because of us, but because of God's grace. What we see here is that the way that God saves is that God saves through his promise. And that God's promise is not for good people, it's not for church-going people, it's not for obedient people, it's for people who acknowledge that they have no hope apart from God's promises. For God made this promise initially to Adam and Eve after they sinned in the garden, a promise that there would be a redeemer who would set the world right. 
A promise that continued down to Abraham, where God said to Abraham, I will bless you and I will make your name great, and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The promise that through Abraham's offspring, that there would come one, one one Messiah who would reconcile the brokenness in this world, who would restore people in their relationship to God, who would bring about a reconciliation between God and man, and thereby making a way for reconciliation between people to people, and indeed within the whole created order. And it was this promise that was given to Abraham, that Isaac, his son, would have heard many times over, that Abraham's grandchildren, who were still alive, who were alive at the same time, would have heard him say the promises of God again and again. And it is this promise that continues on down ultimately to the person of Jesus Christ, God become flesh in the person of Jesus, where God says that through him, the only righteous person who ever lived, the only person worthy enough of, the prom- of God and worthy enough of God's standards, dies on the cross and, raises from, and God raises him from the dead. Why? So that through that act, through his work, God would fulfill his promise. That God would fulfill his promise, and as Colossians says, that through Jesus to reconcile all things to himself, whether on heaven or on earth, through his blood that is shed on the cross. And it is through that, that very same promise, that very same promise that Esau rejected. It is that same promise that we can be, be saved today. And the way that we receive that promise is by coming before God and professing to him and saying, God, it is not of me. I bring nothing of value. I only bring my brokenness, my sinfulness, my deceitfulness, my corruptness. That is all I bring to the table. Things that you despise, but I believe in your promise. I believe in your promise and your word that in Jesus Christ I am forgiven. That because of your promise, through Jesus Christ, my debt is paid. My shame and my guilt are gone. And that through your promise alone... I am now your adopted child. You see, that is something that you need to say to God yourself. I believe in the promise through Jesus Christ. It's not something that you need to hear me say and say, yes, I agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that. That's what I believe. I believe it. But you actually need to say that to God yourself. That these promises are not just things that you hear, but things that you yourself believe. And that is all that it takes. For this passage serves as a warning. It serves as a warning especially to people who grow up in the church, to children who grow up in church-going families. And it serves as a warning for you to not trade your Liberty Quarters and Monroe Dollars for pizza and popcorn. For you to not undervalue the things that become so normal in your life. For you to not trade the promises of God for immediate gratification but instead that you trust in God through his promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ and as such that you become eternally blessed. But this passage for us is also an immense encouragement. It encourages us that it is through God's promise alone. It is through his promise made to Adam and Eve made to Abraham and to Isaac and rejected by Esau and made again to Jacob, it is through his promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ that you are saved and it is not because of you and it is not because of us, but it is only and solely by his grace alone. 
And if that is what you believe, then we say, hallelujah, hallelujah. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we confess to you Lord, I confess to you that there is a really, really big part of me that wants to claim credit for your salvation. There is a really big part of me that wants to say that I'm good enough, that I'm smart enough, that I'm better, that I've got better character, that I've, I'm more humble, that I'm, that I'm more obedient, that I've done more, that I've been a better steward of the things that you've given to me. There is a huge part of me that wants to claim credit for your salvation. And I confess that to you. And yet, Father, your word makes abundantly clear that your salvation is not because of us, that the only thing that we bring to the table is our unrighteousness, are our dirty rags, are the things that make us unworthy. And we rejoice that our salvation is not from us and not because of us. What good news it is that I don't have to coerce and try to do something that I fundamentally cannot do and I'm unable to obtain. What good news it is that it is not because of me, but wholly because of your grace. Father, root that truth in us. Lord, fill us with the joy of salvation. Lord, fill us with hope and joy in the promise of the gospel fulfilled in Jesus Christ and still changing lives today, a promise which is still being fulfilled in the present working of your Spirit. Lord, thank you for your promise. Father, there are some here today who come to church possibly for the first time in a long time and have felt that they needed to get their life together, felt that they don't qualify for your grace, and the truth is that none of us qualify for your grace. And Father, we do pray by the powerful working of your Spirit that you would draw them to yourself, that they would turn here this morning and believe in your promise and so be saved. It is in the powerful name of Jesus, our Redeemer, the one who fulfills your promise, who is our hope, our joy, our surety, and our, and our salvation. And it is him alone that we come before you and pray. Amen.